welcome to Detroit Today on WDET. It's 101.9 FM and WDET.org online. I'm Sandra Sabota, your host today, and we are devoting this hour to talk about the Great Lakes. Today's guests are going to take us on an environmental tour. We will span the 1,100 miles between Duluth, Minnesota, on the western edge of Lake Superior, and go to Kingston, Ontario, on the eastern edge of Lake Ontario. We're going to tour Michigan's mitten-shaped coastline and the Upper Peninsula, and we'll find out what issues unite and divide us across the region. Some of our potential disasters are shared, but the solutions, well... The Wilda Act is not the same across the states and even the countries involved. But we'll also hear about some successes. How have citizens, advocacy groups, and elected leaders served as defenders or protectors, if you will, of the lakes? I know this is personal to many of us. Uh, I have many family memories of uh, stories from childhoods on vacations across the lakes. Maybe you're listening from your office high up in the Renaissance Center where you get that view and you're lucky enough to watch the Detroit River in action every day. And even if you don't catch a glimpse of the Great Lakes system on a regular basis, all of us who live and work and visit this area are affected by the issues that we're going to talk about for day for today. And I know for me, today's conversations will serve as a bit of a reminder to tread maybe a little more lightly on this unique resource. The Great Lakes are the world's largest expanse of fresh water. And just how fresh they are, well, we are going to hear about that today. I would first like to welcome John Flesher to the show. He is an environmental writer with the Associated Press. He is located in Traverse City, and he covers not only the Great Lakes, but environmental issues nationally. John, welcome to WDET. Thank you, Sandra. Glad to be with you. So tell us what we should be concerned about. What, what's kind of the status of the Great Lakes right now? Well, uh, you, it's uh, sort of a half-empty or half-full uh, scenario, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, you know, you, you were talking uh, about the uh, importance of the Great Lakes and what they mean to people, uh, and sometimes uh, it may take an outsider to truly appreciate just what we have here. You know, I'm a native southerner. I grew up mostly in the Carolinas, uh, although I've lived in Traverse City for more than 25 years now. And I have to tell you that uh, until I began reporting on, on Michigan, the Great Lakes region, I simply had no idea of how incredibly large and, and fascinating and beautiful these uh, inland seas are. And they really are just uh, little freshwater oceans. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, how much of the, uh, the world's fresh water they supply. It's about 20 percent uh, of all the, the fresh water on the surface of the earth. And you throw in the St. Lawrence River and uh, it goes a couple of thousand miles from the Atlantic to Duluth, Minnesota. So it, it, it is a, a very precious uh, uh, water system. And about uh, uh, when you come to the economy, the economic standpoint, they give the region a, a big uh, competitive advantage at a time when freshwater shortages are expected to become more acute in much of the world. Uh, so uh, protecting the quantity of the water, making sure that, uh, that it isn't wasted, is a, a big issue. And a couple of debates that have come forward uh, in recent years uh, along that line include the, the question of whether Waukesha, Wisconsin, should be allowed to use Lake Michigan water, although it's a little bit outside the, the watershed or the drainage basin, and also the question of uh, whether the Nestle Company should be allowed to expand its uh, pumping in western Michigan for bottling operations. So those are a couple of examples there. And when you turn to water quality, you have uh, a lot of issues that uh, have been around for a long time and others that are fairly uh, recent. There are questions of, uh, of legacy toxins, they're called, uh, toxic hot spots where all manner of industrial chemicals are, are still polluting the bottomlands of river, river uh, mouths and harbors, and they're being cleaned up, but very slowly. You have harmful algae, particularly in western Lake Erie and some, some other parts of the Great Lakes that are uh, wreaking havoc, uh, especially this time of year. Invasive species like uh, the zebra and quagga mussels have done terrible damage, and you have the looming threat of Asian carp out there, and there, there are other potential invaders that could get in and do a lot of, of uh, harm. And then uh, more recently, there have been chemicals that we didn't really know were in the lakes, but are starting to show up in, in samples like uh, fire retardants and, and pharmaceuticals, and even the little tiny bits of plastic called microplastics or, or microfibers that are showing up too. So there's still a lot to work on, and, and including this battle to continue federal funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which is a a program that spent more than $2 billion on thousands of uh, environmental cleanup projects. So uh, a great deal to think about. 
John, I feel like some of the issues you mentioned are not always visible to us as we look at the lakes. You can't see the microfibers and the plastics that are in the water, say. Uh, we, I kind of, we, we always, we here in Detroit like to point to Cleveland and the river catching on fire and issues of pollution on Lake Erie that are really visible. And, you know, when the water is smelly, we're aware that there may be an issue. How is it different now, the issues facing the Great Lakes? How are those issues different now that they're not quite as visible? What's the political and activist challenge there? Well, for one thing, it is actually to let people know that when you sit on a beach or maybe you're looking out from a 20th story of a building out over the lakes, they can seem very beautiful on a nice sunny day, very placid, and it would seem it all as well. But beneath the surface, a lot is going on. The damage that the uh, the invasive mussels, the the zebra mussel, particularly its its evil twin, the, the quagga mussel, uh, have done to the lakes is really just about impossible to overstate. They've affected the lakes in, in a number of ways uh, by filtering allow, out a lot of the the useful planktons in the water, making them a lot more sterile, and uh, and really upending uh, entire ecosystems. And uh, so they, uh, they've caused a lot of trouble. When you find uh, dead birds along the shoreline sometimes, it, it can be because of botulism that uh, the mussels are believed to have helped to, to bring about. So the, the appearance is deceptive, and uh, there is a lot going on beneath the surface uh, from invasive species and, and other uh, uh, pollutants that, that really need to, that people need to think about, and they need to realize that, uh, that what you see at the top is, is really just uh, literally, to use that cliche, the tip of the iceberg. John, thank you for that overview. I know you're going to stay with us through this hour, so we're going to come back to you in a moment. And um, I'd like to remind the listeners, if they do have questions about the lakes uh, and things in particular, issues they should be worried about or uh, observations they have, if they're noticing the quality improving or getting worse, we do want to hear from you. That number is 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Sabota, and we're doing a special hour devoted to Great Lakes issues. We just heard from John Flesher, who's an environmental writer with the Associated Press. He's been with the Associated Press for a long time and covering these issues. But I also want to welcome to the studio a relative newcomer to the environmental beat. Mary Ellen Geist is the Detroit Bureau Chief at Detroit Public Television for the Great Lakes Now Initiative. Mary Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to the discussion of environmental issues. I know we've we've talked about before the show about uh, some impressions you've had in your first few months in this job. So tell us about those and what Great Lakes Now aims to do. Well, greatlakesnow.org really aims to make issues about the Great Lakes understandable to the general public. Sometimes the websites and the writing speaks to a, a very small audience, scientists, environmentalists who are already on board. Um, we really want to get the word about how important the Great Lakes are to a wide range of people. But it was so interesting listening to John Flesher. He lives in a beautiful place in Traverse City. We are in an urban atmosphere now, and it's been a really interesting time since I came on board in January to be in an urban area, Detroit. A lot of people really were not so aware. I think people in general in big cities might not touch the lakes the way people who already love the out-of-doors. One of the biggest tasks we have, I think, is to drive home the point that it isn't just about beautiful sailing and swimming. This is a huge economic engine, and it's eight states. It's two Canadian provinces. It's 1.5 million jobs brought in by the Great Lakes. It's $60 billion in wages each year, 21% of the world's surface freshwater. Um, It's amazing how much this freshwater means to so many people. And I think really being here at this time, right in the wake of the Flint water crisis, I think that drove home how important the drinking water issue is, the Detroit River drinking water, which many of us use. And 40 million people get their drinking water from the Great Lakes. There's so many issues from rural to urban. And I think that's one of the biggest tasks we have as writers to bring this home to so many different people, how important this is. Okay. Marilyn Geist based here in Detroit. I want to go to Danielle Kading. She is a reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio, our sister NPR. PR station. She is based in Superior, Wisconsin, which is next door to Duluth, Minnesota, and she covers a lot of different environmental issues up there. So, Danielle, what are the biggest environmental issues there in the western end of Lake Superior? Well, without a doubt, uh, the St. Louis River estuary cleanup is one of the largest concerns. Um, you know, at the St. Louis River spans 3,600 square miles, I believe, and the cleanup there has been ongoing for the better part of more than a couple of decades. Um, the 
work that needs to be done on the river is the result of legacy contamination from industry along the river. Um, There were issues with sewage in the lake from wastewater treatment plants and wood waste from lumber mills and other types of industry um, just spotted along the lakefront that really contributed to a lot of environmental issues within the river. And when the Clean Water Act uh, was enacted and uh, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement took place. Um, the St. Louis River was one of, I believe, 43 sites that were designated as an area of concern because they were, uh, it was so contaminated or so polluted, it had um, nine of the 14 beneficial use impairments, which are kind of a list of the ways that you can use a body of water or a river. And um, there were nine uses basically that, that we couldn't get out of the St. Louis River because it was so contaminated. Um, since it was designated as an area of concern so far, one of those beneficial use impairments has been removed from that list. And there's a target for delisting this site Um, as an area of concern with the EPA in, uh, I believe, 2020 or 2025. And uh, there's been a lot of money and time and blood, sweat, and tears invested in trying to get the river back to the way it was before uh, we saw a lot of this contamination. And one of the things that they've had success with over the years is just um, with cleaning up the river along the lakefront and uh, reintroducing fish into the river, like um, doing some things with lake sturgeon. Um, Before, back in the 70s, people wouldn't go down to the river. They wouldn't fish there because it was so contaminated. You could smell it when you would cook the fish, people would say. And so now people can go down to the river and they can fish for walleye. And things are a lot better. And the city of Duluth um, has really been um, trying to make a name for itself by investing in the riverfront, by investing in trails and infrastructure to draw people down to the water, to make it a destination. And so cleaning up the St. Louis River is a big part of what they'd like to see, which is kind of under threat right now with um, talks of budget cuts to the U.S. EPA, Um, and to the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which has, uh, for the last, I believe, six years, invested around $250 to $300 million in cleanup of polluted sites along Great Lakes. And so, um, you know, Duluth, Superior, they're really relying on money from the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative to be able to have the funds to take care of a lot of this work. Um, The state of Minnesota recently um, approved... I believe it was a little bit more than $24 million in bonding uh, to help leverage this federal money to be able to clean up a lot of these sites, one of them being uh, the U.S. the former U.S. steel site, which um, is considered a Superfund site. And so there are plans to cap off contaminated sediments there and that, you know, all of this work costs money. And you know, right now they are really dependent on the federal government's role along with uh, state partners, to be able to do this work. Let me back you up and talk a little bit about the St. Louis River. How does the community view the river? Have there been efforts to get really the community engaged that have made a kind of difference in getting that cleanup going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people love the river in Duluth and Superior, and there have been multiple groups that have taken an interest in trying to, you know, bridge policymakers with the public, one of them being the St. Louis River Alliance. Um, And uh, there have also been citizen-based efforts like uh, the One River Many Stories project, which uh, was a project that was um, implemented by a colleague of mine, Paul Lundgren. Um, We both uh, had an affinity for Mike Simonson, who was uh, the former superior reporter for Wisconsin Public Radio. And his goal in the future when he was going to retire was to do a lot of work about the St. Louis River and the cleanup and things that are happening along the river, the stories about the river. And unfortunately, Mike passed away in October of 2014. And so Paul got this idea that, hey, you know, this would be a great way to contribute to Mike's legacy of journalism and also to highlight what's happening on the river and get people's stories and collect those and use it as a way to leverage why this is so important, you know, beyond just the environmental impacts, the social impacts of why the river has an impact 
on the Duluth Superior area. And so um, he worked with the University of Minnesota Duluth and with many community partners to gather those stories. Uh, we had plays and um, radio snippets. Uh, there were TV spots, all sorts of people that, you know, took time to tell the stories of people's experiences living alongside the river and why it's important to them. Um, and I think that was a very successful effort in part because of the large collaboration and, you know, all the different people who contributed to that project. And so I think we've got a lot of groundwork in the area that shows just how significant um, our natural resources and, and the St. Louis River is to that area and, you know, why there's a case for investing in the future of that. Well, we will put a link to that One River Many Stories project on our website at WDET.org. I want to remind the listeners, you're listening to Detroit Today on WDET, Detroit's public radio station. We're at 1019 FM on the dial or WDET.org online. I'm Sandra Sobota hosting today. We're part of a special hour on the Great Lakes and some of the environmental issues. And right now I'm talking with Danielle Kading. She's a reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio in Superior, Wisconsin, there at the far western edge of Lake Superior, uh, adjacent to Duluth is where Superior is. So we're talking about some of the issues that they're seeing up there. Danielle, I want to ask you about the issue of climate change. How do you see it there in Duluth? Are people feeling effects of climate change? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, maybe not so much this year because it's been a little bit colder and wetter near the lake. But um, in years past, we've seen the warming of the surface water of Lake Superior. So people have been more um, open to swimming um, in the lake during the summertime. And we have a researcher at the Natural Resources Research Institute at the University of Minnesota Duluth um, with the Large Lakes Observatory. That's Jay Austin. And he's done a, a large um, body of work uh, studying uh, lake warming in Superior and over the last three decades or so, how we've seen the average surface water temperature of Lake Superior go up. And that's something that researchers really want to keep track of because as the temperatures in the lake increase, you know, if that filters all the way down to the bottom, then that can have an impact on the food chain, right? I mean, so if we're seeing changes at the very bottom of the lake, that can change what's happening further up and that can have impacts on the fishery and what types of fish we're seeing in Lake Superior. Because um, right now, obviously, it's a very cold water lake, very pristine. And so we have a lot of cold water fish that thrive in that lake. And so if we continue to see lake warming over the years, we could potentially see a shift in the ecosystem of the lake in which, um, you know, fish species or other types of um, animals, plants, wildlife that thrive around the lake. So there's a lot of attention being paid to the impacts of climate change, whether it's in the water or just on the lakefront. And, 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 you know, aside from that, just on weather, too. I mean, we've had, uh, obviously, the 2012 flood event, which cost millions and millions of dollars in infrastructure damage to the area. And so communities are now having to think about how climate change could potentially affect infrastructure and how, how do you possibly build or engineer your your sewers, your your pipes to withstand these types of large flood events, right? If they're going to be more than that 100-year flood, um, how do you plan for like a 500 or 1,000-year flood event? And um, we're seeing evidence of heavier, um, more frequent rainfalls um, in the in the region, and so there's a lot of talk about how communities should be planning. Um, to withstand these types of weather events. And how do you think public officials are doing? Are they are they spending the money and finding the funds to put that kind of infrastructure in and building it sustainably? Or is how much work is left to be done in those communities there? You know, I think there's a lot of will to do that type of work and a lot of desire to be prepared so that, you know, they can save money rather than have to expend it later on the back end trying to repair all those damages, maybe make the investment up front. But the problem is money, right? I mean, there's not a lot of money trickling down anymore from the federal government or the state governments for that matter. And so communities are really tasked with trying to figure out creative, innovative ways as to how they can do this. And, and one way in which we've seen that is there's been a lot more partnership, a lot more engagement, 
uh, among communities along the lake to share ideas and, hey, you know, what's working for you? Um, you know, what could we possibly mimic here that you're doing? Um, things like that. And also, you know, there's a lot of talk, too, about um, locally leveraging money. Um, we've seen people look more to bonding or look more to, um, you know, little things like raising the sales tax in order to create some sort of revenue to be able to plan for things like this. But unfortunately, you know, these aren't the only issues facing these communities. There are also um, other issues like transportation infrastructure and, you know, trying to address health and human services needs. So there's a lot of competing factors for those dollars. So it's really about, I think, more on the relationship and, and, and leveraging partnerships to be able to come up with ways to be prepared in the future. And finally, Danielle, in the minute or so we have left, I wonder if you could uh, help us learn from the community up there. For people looking to be engaged on environmental issues or from groups doing this work here in southeast Michigan, can you describe any uh, one or two successes that community groups have had up in your area there in Duluth, Minnesota, and Superior, Wisconsin? You know, I really think that that partnership piece, I mean, we've seen just with the area of concern with the St. Louis River, how Minnesota and Wisconsin have worked together to keep on top of the millions of dollars worth of cleanup that need to take place. I mean, we've seen uh, relationships between local, nonprofit, local government, state and federal government, and it's, it seems very coordinated. And I don't think without that type of coordination among all these different groups and trying to tell the stories, make the science, you know, make sense to the layperson and why that's important, I don't think you would see the type of success that we've had up here with how far we are today without that kind of partnership and those relationships that people have built with one another across state lines and uh, across the Great Lakes. Danielle Kading, reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio, thanks so much for joining us on WDET's Detroit Today program. Thank you so much, Sandy. Stay with us. We're talking more environmental issues here in the Great Lakes. WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Happy Wednesday, and thanks for listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Svoboda, your host today, and we're devoting this hour to talk about the Great Lakes. We are journeying from Duluth, Minnesota. We just heard from Danielle Kading there. She's actually in Superior, Wisconsin, right there on Lake Superior, talking about some issues in that community. We have John Flesher on the line. He's in Traverse City. He's a national environmental writer with the Associated Press. And Mary Ellen Geist is in studio. She is with Great Lakes the great the Detroit Public Television Great Lakes Bureau covering environmental issues. And I want to go to now Buffalo, New York. Dave Rosenthal is the managing editor of the Great Lakes Today initiative. It's a colla another collaboration of public media stations uh, led by WBFO in Buffalo, where he's based. Dave, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Sandra. Thanks for having me. Sure. So you heard Danielle there talking about some of the issues in Duluth. We'll, we'll get to more about what's happening in Detroit, but give us give us the overview of Eastern Lake Erie and Western Lake Ontario from your vantage point in Buffalo. What are the biggest environmental issues there? Well, in um, as some of the other folks have said, like Danielle was talking about the cleanup of the St. Louis River. Uh, <clears throat> we've had a similar cleanup here in Buffalo, and that's um, made a tremendous difference in economic development in the city. The Buffalo River, which flows right into Lake Erie at the eastern end, used to be an industrial um, wasteland, very polluted, and no one really wanted to go down there. So they spent a lot of money, you know, millions of dollars and a lot of time to clean it up. And now there are new restaurants, housing, uh, a nice boardwalk along the waterfront, and they're bringing in more and more development every every week, it seems. So that's that shows the kind of impact that a cleanup can have on a city. It's really changed the whole mindset of people here in the, in the city and made them want to go down to the water, whereas in the past, everybody sort of turned their backs on the water because it was all filled with industry and there, 
the water was polluted. There wasn't really any reason to go down there. So it's, it's, you know, that sort of cleanup can really change the way a whole city and region thinks about the Great Lakes. And we've seen it here. What were some of the reasons for that success? Uh, we have a listener on Twitter who doesn't want to hear just the bad news about the about the lakes, and I hear you on that. Um, she's looking for tips uh, for people on action they can take. So what kind of successes have you seen there in Buffalo? Well, this what is uh, Danielle mentioned, this is a uh, collaboration with the community um, and government. Everyone sort of came together, recognized the big problem that the city had. Um, you know, it the city was left with a lot of dying industry, like a lot of the other cities in the Great Lakes, um, and they figured out a way to turn it around to their advantage. So you take these industrial sites that had been left uh, when industry moved away, and you clean them up, you make them into parkland, clean up the pollution, and all of a sudden you have a place where, you know, folks want to hang out. We, I was kayaking on the river on Sunday and the day before, I was biking along the Lake Erie on a new bike path that's uh, in parkland that runs a couple of miles along the shore going south from Buffalo. So it's, and gradually people, more and more people are coming down there. So the whole city sort of has a new way of viewing the lakes, whereas in the past they sort of turned their backs on it. Now they're embracing it. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Soboda hosting a show about the Great Lakes. And right now we're talking to Dave Rosenthal. He's an environmental reporter with WBFO, the public radio station in Buffalo, New York. So, Dave, I want you to look westward to Lake Erie, and then I'll ask you to do the same, what, a little north and east to Lake Ontario. But take us through, I mean, the thing we hear about here in Detroit about Lake Erie just to the south of us is the algae blooms. Uh, They've been mostly a western Lake Erie phenomenon, if I'm correct, but what's the impact all the way across the lake yeah they do ha- they do happen most in the western part um, but they happen in other parts of the Great Lakes also like Green Bay has a problem and other you know smaller bays along the Great Lakes can have it where there isn't uh, maybe as much um, movement of the water and there's a lot of agricultural runoff coming into those areas uh, that's the big problem and it happens right about now in August when the warm weather, Uh, heats up the lake, and a lot of the runoff from the farms uh, flows into the lakes. Um, You know, you have to attack it from a lot of different sides, but agricultural runoff seems to be the biggest problem. It contributes more than half of the nutrients that flow into the lake, and they turn into these algae blooms, which can be very toxic. So they can, you know, harm or kill pets. They can make people sick. So it's it's a really big problem in in western Lake Erie especially. It doesn't filter so much across to Buffalo because we're, you know, 180 miles away. So, you know, these lakes are so gigantic. One, you can have a big problem in one area and never really see it in the other part of the lake. Uh, go back to what you said about harmful to pets there for a moment. Uh, I, I take my dog down to the Detroit River often, and uh, people do. We see I see lots of pictures on my social media feeds of people uh, running their dogs on beaches. Is that just a Lake Erie concern with the algae blooms, or are there other things we should be worried about when we vacation and recreate with our dogs on the lakes? Well, the, the algae blooms are a big problem, um, and actually, but actually they're, uh, in a way, better because you can see it. You know, you can often see the green algae and, you know, you might think twice about letting your pet splash through the water. Um, The bigger problem along the Great Lakes is that when we have big rainstorms, the sewage systems in the cities are not really set up to handle them. All the storm water flows through, in most places, flows through the same pipes as the sewage. And when you have a big rainstorm, the pipes just can't handle everything and the treatment plants can't handle all that water. So the sewage runs right into the Great Lakes. Uh, for example, we just did got some data on Lake Ontario because it was a very rainy spring and they've had trouble with flooding there and found that on one day alone, May 1st, some 90 million gallons of untreated sewage flowed into the lake. Um, mainly from Toronto, which is the biggest city on the lake by far, but also from places like Rochester, New York, and Oswego, New York, Hamilton, Ontario. Um, And this is a problem all across the lakes. Um, They're trying to 
figure out ways to solve it. One, for example, Cleveland is digging huge tunnels underground that could hold some of this water uh, during storms and keep it from going into the lake until it can be treated by the treatment plants. Um, Rochester has done the same thing. Uh, so that's one solution that's been tried. There are others out there, but that is a huge problem all around the lakes. And the best way is to check. Uh, there's usually a place online where you can check to see if uh, there's been a discharge into the lake and the water is not safe for you or your pets to swim in. But uh, I would especially be careful after any rainstorm for a day or two until the water can clear up. Dave, I'm scribbling that note down. Uh, we actually have a post on our site now at WDET.org. It's a map of the lakes, and it's got some points on it where listeners can click and learn more about some issues that are that are happening there. Some of your stories will be on there, but I'm definitely going to add uh, the link to where people can find out about water quality in the areas. So, so thanks for that. Um, I want to go to a listener question. Uh, she wants to know about whether we could see Lake Erie return to the status of a dead lake and what that would mean. Well, I'm hoping uh, it's heading away from being a dead lake, and I think they're doing everything right so far. Um, the problem is, you know, they might become a victim of their own success in a way, in that people see the lake, see buffalo revitalization, they see parkland along the lakes, and they think that the problem is solved, when in fact there it takes really decades to clean up all the pollution in the lakes. And um, that's why it's important to keep this federal funding that Mary Ellen talked about and some of the others talked about, because uh, you need that you need that funding to keep the momentum up. It would be horrible to see it sort of backsliding. Uh, but I think everyone understands that if these cities along the Great Lakes are going to rebound and have any sort of a renaissance, they need a clean lake. They don't need more industry dumping pollution into the lakes, like the old steel mills, you know, U.S. Steel in Duluth, Bethlehem Steel in Buffalo. Um, I don't think those days are going to come back. So I think we're, hopefully, knock on wood, safe from having a dead Lake Erie again. All right. You brought up the Great Lakes Restoration Funding uh, being debated in Washington, D.C. I want to go back to John Flusher. He's the Associated Press Correspondent in Traverse City, but one of his focuses is the environmental issues. So, John, um, can you talk to us a little bit about where that funding stands? What's the latest and what should we look forward to in the fall? Yes, the uh, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative uh, has its roots way back in the uh, in the mid 2000s when the coalition of uh, of uh, governments and uh, environmental groups and others came together and sort of developed a wish list uh, of things that really needed to be done, the top priorities in the Great Lakes region. And uh, President uh, George W. Bush uh, signed uh, legislation uh, to get that going uh, at the time, although there wasn't a lot of money attached to it. When President Obama came along in 2010, he made it a much higher priority and began an annual stream of funding. The first year it was $475 million, and then subsequently it was usually around $300 million a year. And this was money that would, uh, would be distributed primarily by uh, the EPA, but also by other agencies, to a, a vast uh, array of uh, nonprofits and universities and uh, state and local government agencies, tribal uh, agencies, many others, who would uh, carry out all these projects to get cleanups going and restore wetlands and, and many other uh, many other endeavors. Now, uh, when President Trump uh, came along and, and released his uh, his budget proposal this year, it called for eliminating all of that funding and. Uh, contending that this is something that should be taken care of by the states, along with some other regional programs uh, that dealing with uh, other areas like Chesapeake Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, Puget Sound, and, and things like that. Now, that uh, created a, a, a pretty a strong backlash within the Great Lakes region. And one of the really interesting things uh, about the, the Great Lakes is that it seems to be one of the, the only issues, and maybe the only issue, that really uh, unites the uh, the two political parties uh, across the, the Great Lakes region. Uh, support for funding of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is is very bipartisan and, and darn near unanimous uh, among uh, elected officials. And they let it be known uh, to uh, the president and his administration that they really do strongly support uh, the GLRI and they, they want it to continue. Now, 
it's interesting. Uh, the uh, EPA administrator Scott Pruitt has recently spoken uh, very highly about the uh, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and, and talked about its accomplishments. It's a bit unclear as to uh, where he stands on the question of whether the funding should be continued. Uh, the administration, as far as I know, has not reversed its position that uh, the, uh, the money should now come from the states or from other sources. Uh, but the, uh, there is also one, uh, already one uh, congressional committee that has voted to, uh, to re return, restore the, the $300 million uh, annual appropriation to the, this initiative. And all indications are that uh, support in Congress will be very strong. So uh, I, I try to avoid uh, prognostication because I'm usually wrong, but at this point anyway, uh, it would be pretty surprising if, in fact, the money were to be cut out. Now, the question might be, when you get into final, uh, the final rounds of, of budget negotiations and uh, gets down to crunch time, might some of that money be cut out? Uh, that's a very real possibility. We'll just have to, to wait and see what happens. Mary Ellen Geist is with us in studio. She's with Detroit Public Television and an environmental initiative there, Great Lakes Now, uh, coverage of the Great Lakes. Mary Ellen, what kind of backlash have you seen here in the Great Lakes area to those potential cuts? I think that John and Dave will agree that Donald Trump's threat and the Trump administration's threat to cut GLRI funding is one of the best things that's happened to the Great Lakes and to websites like greatlakesnow.org and all of the work that we do as environmental reporters because it was incredible. There was a huge, I started at, you know, greatlakesnow.org in January, just a few days. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be doing lovely stories on the beaches and the sailing and in some environmental stories and take a couple weeks to write each story. Immediately after I started, the threat to GLRI happened and it was a flood of people coming to our website. And shortly afterwards, I went to a conference about Lake Erie in which Jeff Ritter, who is considered the czar of Lake Erie, said these words, and I use that as a headline for my story, if we lose the EPA, we lose Lake Erie, and this is connected to threats to funding to EPA, threats to funding to GLRI. It flew across the internet and actually crashed our website and went to 500,000 shares, and we've had this large audience ever since of people who care about Lake Erie, who care about the Great Lakes, and they've stayed with us, and it's quite amazing that so many people just suddenly realized, I think, through that threat, how important the Great Lakes were to them. And we've had constant, you know, audience since that time, constant coverage. And there are many people becoming active that might not have been active before. And again, it is bipartisan. John's absolutely right. It's really interesting on both sides of the aisle in Washington, D.C., on both sides of the aisle in your small town or your large urban area. Both sides are coming out and saying the Great Lakes are important to me. You know, my husband is an artist and he, he works in a place where you might not think people would be upfront or patriotic or have American flags on their cars. But here at CCS, the College for Creative Studies, almost every car has that little mitt with uh, not just the mitten, but all the Great Lakes, the insignia, that symbol on all of our cars. It's something that everyone can come forward about. And we're finding an amazing amount of interest and amazing amount of involvement from people who want to make sure the Great Lakes will have that funding for the future. Dave Rosenthal, what has been the response from people and politicians there in Buffalo? It's been very similar there. Uh, for example, there's a Republican congressman, Chris Collins, who represents the suburbs of Buffalo, uh, a diehard Trump supporter. But this support for the Great Lakes funding is one place that he has broken with the president. Um, and then there, the city of Buffalo tends to be more liberal. And the congressman who represents this area, Congressman Higgins, also supports it. So again, uh, across the spectrum, everybody is unanimously, unanimously uh, in support of the funding. And I think it's because the Great Lakes represent a lot of things to different people. You know, for folks maybe toward the left, they represent, you know, uh, preserving the natural landscape, uh, restoring that landscape, saving the wildlife um, that have been threatened in the lakes. Uh, creating a place for recreation. While, you know, more to the right, it represents a place to uh, create new business development, uh, bring people back and restore the economic health of the region. So I think the Great Lakes are so huge and are so important that they represent a lot of things to a lot of different people, which is great because it builds that huge uh, amount of support. 
All right, we're going to continue that conversation about what the Great Lakes mean to all of us. You're welcome to join this conversation. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. We want to hear from you what you're willing to do to support the lakes. How do you show your support? Do you have that little sticker on your car of the Great Lakes? 313-577-1019. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. Stay with us. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda hosting a show about the Great Lakes. We have a panel of journalists. We are talking about issues facing the lakes, both commonly across the 1,100-mile region and also some of the particular ones that hit different cities. So I want to go to the phones. Uh, there are a few of you who want to weigh in. John, on the east side of Detroit, you have been waiting to ask a question, and I, I kind of want to see if we can answer this one. John, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there? Good morning. Go ahead. Hello. Go ahead, John. You're on the air. Oh, yes. So I want to first state that I'm a proud supporter of the Friends of the Detroit River and that uh, as residents of the uh, Jefferson Chalmers area, we stopped the discharge of raw sewage into the Fox Creek, which uh, goes into the Detroit River right at the uh, mouth of Lake St. Clair. My question is about pleasure craft. Uh, we have a lot of them, and uh, sometimes on the canal behind my house, you can actually see the, the oil slick and smell it. And I thought there was legislation to eliminate two-stroke engines, which uh, burn up oil to lubricate the engines, and it goes out as exhaust. I just wondered, first of all, what are the implications of the, the present two-cycle engines out there still operating? and when do we foresee them being gone? Okay, John Flesher, can you answer that question? To be honest, I, I can't. I'm not familiar with that issue. I know that that's, uh, that's been a, uh, an, an issue that's come up in a number of, uh, of contexts. Uh, also, uh, with regard to uh, snowmobiles, uh, there can have been concerns about those and, and efforts to develop uh, other engines that uh, are not quite as polluting. Uh, they, a lot of those had two-stroke engines, at least in the early days. I have not heard uh, discussion of that with regard to the Great Lakes. How about Dave Rosenthal there in Buffalo? How severe of a problem are pleasure crafts or motor oil and pollution in the Great Lakes? Uh, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, frankly, it's not something that's come up in this area. Uh, there hasn't been any move to that I know of to get rid of them. So maybe it's being done in a quiet way, but not in a very public way. Um, one of the larger problems, though, is that we've done stories about is uh, large freighters who um, will dump untreated water overboard. Um, this is oily wastewater, and it's hap it happens all around the country, but it's also happened in the Great Lakes. And this is, uh, you know, tens of thousands of gallons that can go overboard in one fell swoop. And uh, there have been people from freighters uh, and also cruise lines who have gone to prison and had to pay millions of dollars in fines. Um, so that is that is one issue that still pops up all too often in, in the Great Lakes and around the country. All right. Thanks for that answer, John. Thanks for that question. Uh, I'm going to look into that answer for you. And uh, I know the producers have your phone number, so I'm going to get back to you with that one because um, now I'm curious myself. I want to go back to the phones. We have Eve in Wixom. Eve, welcome Hi. to Detroit Today. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. I, mine is a comment that I'm trying to um, live by, and that is just to be less of a consumer and buy products on the, on the shelves that are from companies who, so, you know, support um, environmental issues, and um, whether it be, you know, your laundry soap to actually the, you know, the hamburger that you're buying at the grocery store. Where do you get your information about which brands to buy? Just on, you know, a little bit of researching and on locally, like at the farm markets and things like that. That is a really great point. Um, this year, there were all these conferences in Detroit really proving that Detroit, I think, is the epicenter of the Great Lakes. It was the Green Infrastructure Conference. It was the Great Lakes Economic Forum, Sustainable Brands, the International Association of Great Lakes Researchers. They all talked about this, how in a personal way we have to buy products that will not pollute the lakes. 
And at Sustainable Brands, which I would recommend going to the Sustainable Brands uh, website, just Google Sustainable Brands, you'll get there. Everything from Procter & Gamble's cleaning detergent to cars using, you know, non-polluting um, gases, I mean, uh, fuels. It's really incredible. There's a huge movement. Sustainable Brands is really leading that movement. We covered that at Detroit Public Television at our website, greatlakesnow.org. There are interviews and there are actually lists of products there that you can buy. But I love that you brought that up because that's something that a lot of people don't think about, that every single day, the kind of stuff you put down your drain has a huge influence on our Great Lakes. All right. Thank you, Eve. We're going to put those links on our site, too, at WDET.org, so you can get to all that information Mary Ellen just mentioned. Okay. I want to go to Tim in the Bagley community. Tim, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Um, first of all, where does one buy the uh, Great Lakes um, little sticker that everyone has on their cars? Secondly, I do want to address uh, the gentleman that you had two calls ago, John. I distinctly remember the um, intentionally potential ban on the two-stroke motors, but I think you guys have just uh, already answered the question. I think it's the recreational vehicles, the boating, the snowmobiles, and the lawn care industry that really uh, would have really suffered greatly if those two-stroke engines had been banned, and I'm pretty sure legislation had been swept under the rug for that and a few other reasons as well. Um, we have to also stay vigilant when we have other corporations coming to our shores, including Michigan, Canada, um, Illinois, and Wisconsin, Nestle, for example, when they're coming to take water so that they can give us bottled water, when I can just turn on the tap here and not, you know, allow them to take water from us to ship around the world. Thirdly, uh, we have got to really put the kibosh on uh, this fracking because, as we all know, for those of us who do know, that requires millions of gallons per day of just shooting our fresh waters into the ground to dr drive up very toxic chemicals, gases, oils, and everything else just to get this very low-grade amount of fuel material. And, of course, finally, that uh, Mackinac Strait. If there is a pipeline that's extremely old, then we need to be very vigilant about its uh, potential care and or replacement or at least come up with some ideas on how to capture and retain if there is a spill or leak or anything along that line. Mary Ellen, go ahead. You brought some great points. First of all, I brought my first decal that's on my car still at McLean and Eakin Bookstore in Petoskey, Michigan. A shout out there. But any bookstore, many bookstores carry them. We are efforting right now to have a way to buy those through our website. We're working on that. Second of all, I want to respond to all the things you brought up, including the oil. And um, we are doing, we've just gotten the green light to do a documentary on oil transport. We, of course, are covering Line 5, the pipeline underneath the Straits of Mackinac, which is, there's so much controversy about, which was built in 1953. But I'm so glad you brought up the engines because we should talk about boat engines. And I promise you now we will be discussing that as well when we go forward with this um, documentary we are doing at Detroit Public Television on oil transport. All right. So some follow-up. We, we, we all have some homework uh, out a of this lot. show, which brings <laughs> me to a good way to end in just the couple of minutes we have left. Dave Rosenthal, quickly. What's kind of on your radar for things you'll be covering this fall? Uh, <clears throat> one of the stories we're going to be doing is, of course, watching what happens to the funding for the Great Lakes. But we're also looking at um, how the environmental movement is changing and how it's um, getting into new issues like drinking water, safety, and affordability um, and becoming much more inclusive. So um, that, I think, is a is an issue that sort of time has finally come, and a lot of people are paying more attention to that. Mary Ellen Geist with Detroit Public Television. You mentioned a few things you'll be looking at, but what else is on uh, your plate for fall? We are efforting several videos that we do. We have videos and, of course, written pieces on our website every day, but we are efforting a Line 5 pipeline, a water withdrawal documentary as well. Really interesting project by Aaron Martin on the Pokagon tribe and a water ceremony. They are actually reclaiming, remeandering a river in Dewajak, and it's a fascinating documentary that's coming up as well. And every single day we cover stories about the Great Lakes, and there's so much going on. All right, John Flesher, you get the last couple minutes of the program. So from there in Traverse City as the Associated Press environmental writer, uh, kind of taking that national look, tell us really what you see emerging uh, this fall and beyond for the Great Lakes, both locally and from a national perspective. Well, uh, besides all the things previously mentioned. Which right, <laughs> we, we've planner, done many. We've done uh, many this hour. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, 
Early on, you, you mentioned the, the question of climate change and how that might affect the Great Lakes. And, of course, that, that's a national, international issue that we at the AP have a great deal of interest in. And uh, when, when you think about the Great Lakes, uh, you, you have to think about, yes, water temperatures, as Danielle mentioned, and really uh, the question of water quantity. You know, we, we talk a lot about water quality. Water quantity is sometimes overlooked because it's, it's such a vast resource up here that uh, we can get a little complacent and think maybe uh, we never have to worry about it running out. But there have been concerns over the years about the possibility you know, that water might get piped away to other regions of the country or even around the world. The Great Lakes Compact that was signed in the last decade uh, uh, should uh, answer most of those problems, although some worry that the, uh, the exception uh, that was granted for Waukesha uh, could set precedents that uh, could come back in the future. So people will be thinking about that. And, and how else might uh, the climate, uh, by affecting precipitation, by affecting ice cover, which would cause more evaporation, how might that affect the Great Lakes? That's something of great interest. All right. I'd like to thank all our guests, John Flesher, Mary Ellen Geist, Danielle Kading, Dave Rosenthal, for joining in this hour about the Great Lakes. It's part of our work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative. Support comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation. Thanks to everyone who helped put this show together today. I'd like to thank the producers, technical director, and our associate producers. Thanks for listening to WDET. Diversity matters on Detroit Today. You know, I had the good fortune of actually meeting other transgender service members, Mm -hmm. LGBT service members, and we met in secret. You know, we all had top secret clearances, (laughs) but nothing rose above the level of the secrecy with which we serve. Sure. Detroit Today, weekdays at 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. on 1019 WDET. Hi, I'm Andalisi, and our fall edition of Essential Cooking will be our most unique dining experience to date as we head to Detroit Farm and Garden in Mexican Town in southwest Detroit for a fall harvest Sunday dinner on September 10th at 5 p.m. Detroit Farm and Garden will transform their space for our four-course harvest dinner with a wine pairing prepared by Chef Aaron Solly from Kraftwerk. Tickets and info for Essential Cooking on September 10th at Detroit Farm and Garden are available at WDET.org slash events. Proceeds from Essential Cooking will benefit WDET. Funding for On Point is provided by GEICO, offering auto insurance coverage for cars, trucks, or SUVs, and providing 24-7 customer service. More information on auto insurance at geico.com or 1-800-947-AUTO. From WBUR Boston and NPR, I'm Tom Jelton, in for Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. Americans are more likely to get their news from local television stations than from cable or network programs, but that could change. The Sinclair Broadcast Group, already the nation's largest owner of TV stations, is snapping up more. And it's making them carry Sinclair's own programming, often with a conservative slant. The FCC so far approves. Up next on point, Sinclair Broadcasting on the March and what it means for local TV. First, this news.